welcome to this edition of the Thoracic Surgery Resident Association's podcast. The opinions expressed in this podcast are provided for teaching purposes only and should not be applied directly to patient care. Sadugi, uh, cardiothoracic surgery resident at Mayo Clinic here with Dr. Hartzell Schaff, the Harrington Professor of Surgery and uh, Cardiovascular Surgery Professor at Mayo Clinic since 1980. Dr. Schaff, thank you for being here today to talk about pericardial disease. I'm going to present you with a case and then we're going to talk about preoperative workup, intraoperative strategies, and postoperative management of pericardial disease. The patient is a 67-year-old male who was treated with stage 2 thymoma, including a thymectomy with radiation done about two years ago, and he's returning with fatigue, dyspnea, and exertion, and peripheral edema. What um, is your initial workup strategy, including important findings on history and physical exam? Well, I, I think it's important to understand that the hallmark of constrictive pericarditis and diastolic heart failure is heart failure in the presence of normal systolic function. Most of these patients, by the time they get to the surgeon, have had an echocardiogram. And if a patient has signs and symptoms of right heart failure, but has normal systolic function, normal left ventricular ejection fraction, for example, then you have to ask the question, does a patient have diastolic heart failure related to constrictive disease or restrictive disease? Now, our cardiologists here are good at teasing out echocardiographic features that are typical of constrictive disease versus restrictive disease. But often, patients have some features of both. And that's especially true for a patient like this who's had radiation, because patients who had radiation injury to the heart can have both constrictive pericarditis and restrictive cardiomyopathy. In general, the patients would get an echocardiogram, a CT scan to look at the thickness of the, of the pericardium, and in a patient like this would get a coronary angiogram to, to see if there's additional coronary disease related to radiation injury. So on the echo specifically, what would be suggestive for you of constrictive disease? The features that are obvious are a septal bounce, dilated inferior vena cava, and then a, a ventricular interdependence. And, and these are things that the cardiologist can help you with. They're not always present in patients with constriction. The echocardiogram can be very suggestive, but is not always diagnostic. And I think all of these things have to be put together with the patient and the way they present. Now, with the CT scan, you had mentioned thickening. Is it just thickening or calcification? It's just thickening. The presence of calcification almost always signifies important pericardial disease, but uh, in a case like this, without calcification, we'd look for thickening. It's important to understand, though, that even CT scans can be misleading. We've had about 10 to 15 percent of patients in our series of pericardiectomies have had normal thickness pericardium, so it is possible to have a pericardial constriction without thickening. And then you had mentioned the catheterization. What in particular are you looking for there? A hemodynamic study is not always necessary, and I think that's important to understand. If, if a patient has clear clinical evidence of constriction, an echocardiogram that suggests constriction, and a, and a history that's compatible with it, then we would not necessarily proceed with cardiac catheterization. But in instances where there is uncertainty about the diagnosis, the catheterization is helpful. You would expect to see elevation of the atrial pressures, equalization of the end diastolic pressures across the ventricle, and this issue of ventricular interdependence. Now, if the diagnosis is still in doubt, would you consider doing a biopsy of the pericardium? Is that helpful for you? Have you done that in the past? 
Well, I think rather than thinking about it as a biopsy, I think you should think about it as exploration of the pericardium, not to biopsy the pericardium, but to remove it to see whether there's any improvement. If the patient's going to have a general anesthetic, it's, it seems to me better to remove the pericardium rather than to try to do a limited incision and biopsy. What are the strict criteria for surgical indications to take the patient to the OR for a pericardectomy? Well, if a patient has a clear diagnosis of heart failure related to constriction, and, and all of those tests that we just went over are consistent with constriction and they have heart failure, then I think the patient should be advised to proceed with operation because there's uh, really no medical treatment for it if it's chronic constriction. There are some rare instances where patients can have an inflammatory component um, and can be managed with anti-inflammatory drugs for a month or two to see if there's any improvement in their symptoms. This would be a situation where somebody has an episode, say, of pericarditis that's clearly inflammatory in nature, then develops evidence of constriction within weeks of the diagnosis of inflammatory pericarditis. Those patients might be improved with a short course of anti-inflammatory drugs. But in general, if a patient has heart failure related to chronic constriction, we would advise pericardiectomy. Now, the other group of patients are those that we talked about earlier, and those are patients in whom the diagnosis is uncertain. Um, and in some cases, we end up operating on patients that, while we're not secure in a diagnosis, we have a strong suspicion, and the only way with certainty to rule out constriction is to explore the pericardium. In the operating room, what is the surgical approach? There's a couple of ways to do a pericardiectomy, and it depends on why you're doing a pericardiectomy. We're talking today about constrictive pericarditis, and for those patients, we generally go through a median sternotomy. It is possible to remove enough of the pericardium to relieve constriction through an anterolateral thoracotomy, but you don't have as good access to the great vessels, and you can't do quite as complete a pericardiectomy for chronic constrictive pericarditis through the side as you can through the sternum. So in general, we would favor a sternotomy. Now, once the sternum is opened, we would begin dissection over the right ventricle, about half of the time, the pericardiectomy can be completed without using cardiformity bypass, and about half of the time, we would use cardiformity bypass to support the patient while we're removing the pericardium and manipulating the heart. And what are the indications to be on bypass? I think any time you have hemodynamic deterioration when you're uh, retracting the heart, in some cases with calcific pericarditis, there is spicules of calcification that burrow into the myocardium, and to remove those, you really need to be on bypass because in cauterizing around the area of the, of the calcification, you can get arrhythmias. So if you can do the operation completely off bypass, uh, that would be preferred. On the other hand, uh, if you need to go on bypass to support the circulation or to remove pericardium from these uh, more difficult areas, I think it's safe to do it. What's the cannulation strategy for that? Yep, we would use a single aortic cannula and a single venous cannula um, and would not arrest the heart. There wouldn't be any reason to vent the heart because you don't open it. So you're basically dissecting starting on the right side, and then where would you go? Right. The tips that I would have for people who have not done this operation often are to open both pearl spaces initially. Uh, once we make the incision in the pericardium uh, over the right ventricle and establish the fact that we have constriction, see that we can remove it, then the issues are the lateral extent of the pericardiectomy. And I think it's 
handy to go ahead and enter the pleural space and identify the right and left phrenic nerves. And then we would score the pericardium just anterior to the right and left phrenic nerve so that we have a line to follow when we start to do the dissection. And then when we remove the pericardium, we begin near the aorta and pulmonary artery on the left side, excise the pericardium down to the phrenic nerve to that line that we made all the way down to the diaphragm. We do the same thing on the right side. And once you've done that, you relieve constriction from the right ventricle and the anterior surface of the left ventricle. It's very important at this point, we think, to remove the diaphragmatic surface of the pericardium. So we retract the heart upward, remove the pericardium from the diaphragm, and then remove a portion of the pericardium posterior to the left phrenic nerve. And that would be what we would call a complete pericardiectomy. Do you see any hemodynamic changes intra-op while you're doing this surgery? Well, a couple points about the hemodynamics. If a patient has a pericardiectomy done off bypass, you'll have some fall in the right atrial pressure as you relieve the constriction. If a patient is on bypass, when you go on bypass, you obviously drain the right atrium completely. And then when you refill the patient to come off bypass, you'll find that you'll have a much lower right atrial pressure. Typical numbers would be a right atrial pressure before bypass of 22 to 25, and after you complete the pericardiectomy, you come off bypass with normal systolic blood pressure and a right atrial pressure of, say, 12. So it's, it's that kind of difference that we would expect to see. Have there been cases where you aren't able to get all the pericardium off? Not many. There are some rare instances where you can't excise most of the pericardium, but I think with increasing experience, you can get it off. You can, you can decorticate the ventricle possibly, or completely in most patients. There's, there's two other important things to think about intraoperatively. Um, the, the first one is to be aware that you can develop tricuspid regurgitation after the right ventricle is, is released. Um, we have had some patients that we have gone ahead and done tricuspid valve repairs at the time of the pericardiectomy because the TR is so severe. In some cases, we've not done the tricuspid repair early and found that it was required late. So it's very important to do an echocardiogram during surgery and to look at the tricuspid valve afterwards. The second important point is to look for epicardial constriction because often, as I watch residents start to do pericardiectomies, they'll find the wrong plane. It may be an easy plane to separate so that you remove pericardium from the heart, but if you leave an epicardial layer on, you'll still have constriction. So it's very important to be completely certain that you're in the right plane when you remove the, the pericardium. Postoperatively, how do we manage these patients? It's not unusual for patients to require some inotropic support early on, and you might ask why, because if a patient has normal systolic function before, why would you have any ventricular dysfunction afterwards? There are studies that have shown that if you encase the heart and have restriction to diastolic filling over time, then when you release the, the constriction, the heart will dilate, and it's probably the stretching of the sarcomeres that leads to some dysfunction early after surgery, so we would be relatively liberal in using low doses of dopamine or epinephrine early. Rarely patients would need more support, but there have been patients that have required intraaerial balloon or, in rare instances, ECMO. Any other complications postoperatively that we should be aware of? Well, Sahari, it's very important to understand that the outcome of surgery and the anticipated complications have more to do with the disease that the patient has rather than the operation that we're talking about today, which is pericardiectomy. For example, uh, 
the most common cause of constricting pericarditis is what we call idiopathic, and those patients may have had a history of pericarditis in the past or maybe didn't know about it, don't have any other heart disease, and their outcome and their anticipated recovery early after surgery is very straightforward. The patient that we just talked about has radiation heart disease, mm -hmm. and with radiation heart disease, you can have restricted cardiomyopathy, constricted pericarditis, coronary disease, you can have radiation injury to the lungs, etc. So what problems do we anticipate? Well, in a patient who has radiation heart disease and constricted pericarditis, we would anticipate chronic pleural effusions. That's very common. We would leave pleural drains in until the, the drainage is almost subsided completely uh, because they can have this for weeks after surgery. You also have to be careful about anticipating the need for ventilatory support in a patient with radiation heart disease because they can often have radiation injury to the lung. And it's important for these patients not to develop pleural effusions that go unmanaged because they'll, they'll develop an entrapped lung. And in fact, many of them that have radiation-induced pericardial disease will have a trapped lung due to chronic effusions on both sides. If the lung does not re-expand and the effusions don't resolve, the patient may need decortication. So I just wanted to quickly talk about um, some alternative scenarios in the same case. You're in the operating room and this patient has had previous bypass grafts, and during your dissection, you accidentally enter into one of the grafts. How do you proceed from that? Well, almost always when we operate on a patient with coronary disease and previous bypass grafts, we will go on bypass. So the, in the initial part of the operation would be doing the sternotomy carefully, opening the, the pericardium anteriorly. And usually it's open anteriorly because they've already had a, 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 an operation so that it's not difficult to identify the aorta and the right atrium without getting into a bypass graft. So we would rarely or almost never begin a pericardiectomy in a patient with patent grafts without being on bypass. Now, once you're on bypass and if you get some bleeding from a graft, it's possible in many cases to repair the graft without arresting the heart. We would try that first. So I think if it's a vein graft especially, we would, uh, uh, we would simply put sutures in, in the graft if it's not a, a badly diseased graft. If there's graft atherosclerosis, then you need to be prepared to replace the graft. The mammary artery is not that hard to stay away from unless it's in the midline. So once you've made the sternotomy, if the graft's to the left of the, of the midline, it's not too difficult to do a pericardiectomy and stay away from that because it really runs along the, you know, parallel to the LAD and it's not hard to do a, a pericardiectomy and preserve an LA, a left internal mammary graft. But it's, it's important to know ahead of time not only whether the graft is patent, but whether the patient has a graft-dependent circulation. For example, if you injure a graft to the LAD and, and there's good flow through the proximal native artery, there's not as much urgency in fixing it as there would be if, if the patient was graft-dependent. So that's an important point. Another scenario, the patient has a remote history of lymphoma and you do the workup and it's showing constrictive pericardial disease. You proceed to take the patient to the operating room and you find large implants on the pericardium which were not visualized preoperatively. How would you proceed? We would still do a pericardiectomy and relieve the constriction. Unless a malignancy complicates the pericardiectomy, you ought mm -hmm. to do it. Well, the, the two malignancies that I'm aware of that have been confused with constriction are mesothelioma of the pericardium and one patient who had a breast cancer that was metastatic to the pericardium. 
Now, in those situations, if it's the cancer that's encasing the heart, then I, I think you have to be very cautious about doing too much because their outlook is limited by their cancer. On the other hand, if it's just an implant of a lymphoma and something that can be treated afterwards, I, I would complete the peritoneum. Okay, perfect. All right. Thank you very, very much. Good. Thank you.